It's good to see all of you here this morning. Let me pray before we jump right in. Lord Jesus, we thank you that we're able to gather together this morning. Open your word and hear what you have to say to us, and we ask that you would give us open hearts and open minds so that we understand what you're saying to us, and so that we, we don't go away from here and then just forget everything of what you've spoken, but actually apply it to our own lives. Help us to do these things, Lord, through your Spirit. Amen. Well, today we're continuing with the series that we've been going through for a while called Praying with Saints and Sinners, where we've been looking at different prayers found throughout Scripture by different individuals and looking at how we can apply them to our own lives. So we've looked at the Apostle Paul and some of his prayers. We've looked at King Hezekiah in the Old Testament and one of his prayers. And last week, Doan walked through another question with us. Uh, How about unanswered prayer? How about when we pray and God doesn't seem to to answer our prayers, saying yes? What do we do then? What, What did we do when it feels like God is silent? And this morning, we're looking at some of the most difficult prayers to understand in all of Scripture. In fact, if you have younger kids with you, maybe watching at home, then you may not want them to hear some of the verses we're going to be reading because of how violent they are. And these prayers can be troubling to many of us. As you may know or may have seen, um, when Pastor Bill preached a number of weeks ago on Praying with David, the Psalms, the book of Psalms, is the prayer book of the church. It's meant to be used. It's not just records of prayers, but actually it it teaches us how to pray. The Psalms have been the prayer book of the church ever since uh, the church began. And so today, in many parts of the world, in many different traditions, and throughout the centuries, Uh, People have read and prayed from the Psalms daily. And not just coming back to a select few of their favorites, Psalm 23, maybe Psalm 46, Psalm 51, but actually going through all 150 of them. A tradition which is is really good in in my eyes. And so the Psalms are meant to be prayed. We even see in how they're organized that this is what they're meant for. That's why when you look at the beginning of a lot of these psalms, you have that little bit that most of us just skip over, where it says, to the choir director, or to the director of music, to the tune of the lilies, or to, or to some other tune, because they're, they're meant to be played with music, they're meant to be sung, they're meant to be prayed. There's even one book um, I have called Praying with the Bible, or Praying the Bible. And the author has one chapter called Praying the Psalms, and then the next chapter is called Praying Other Parts of the Bible. And and that second chapter is actually even shorter than the first chapter. And so that's how central the Psalms are for the prayers of Jesus' people. That's how central they are. So if the Psalms are examples for us, if they don't just show us prayers, but actually they're meant to be prayed themselves and they're meant to teach us how to pray, then what do we do with some of the more troubling ones? Ones like Psalm 58. Break the teeth in their mouths, O God. Lord, tear out the fangs of those lions. Let them vanish like water that flows away. 
When they draw the bow, let their arrows fall short. May they be like a slug that melts away as it moves along, like a stillborn child that never sees the sun. The righteous will be glad when they are avenged, when they dip their feet in the blood of the wicked. I doubt, or at least hope, that none of these are your favorite Bible verses. If they are, then you really need Jesus. <laughs> and it's a good thing that you're in church this morning. I mean, we all need Jesus, but maybe you need him a little bit more than we do. No. All about Psalm 94. The Lord is a God who avenges. O God who avenges, shine forth. Rise up, judge of the earth. Pay back to the proud what they deserve. Or Psalm 109. Appoint someone evil to oppose my enemy. Let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he's tried, let him be found guilty. And may his prayers condemn him. May his days be few. Make another take his place of leadership. May his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. May his children be wandering beggars. May they be driven from their ruined homes. May a creditor seize all he has. May strangers plunder the fruits of his labor. May no one extend kindness to him or take pity on his fatherless children. May his descendants be cut off, their names blotted out from the next generation. May the iniquity of his fathers be remembered before the Lord. May the sin of his mother never be blotted out. May their sins always remain before the Lord, that he may not or may that the Lord may blot out their name from the earth. These aren't the kind of verses that you can buy printed on mugs or on postcards. You know, if you walk in someone's house and you, and you see a, a poster, a framed poster, with one of these verses in, you should probably leave. <laughs> I don't think any of us have spent time memorizing these verses as children. We're not sitting here going, yes. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. The righteous will be glad when they dip their feet in the blood of the, their enemies. I don't think Bill sits at home with his acoustic guitar singing along to these, these psalms. So what exactly do we make of them? Most of us probably find these quite troubling. Are these really found in the same Bible where Jesus says, I love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. Or the Apostle Paul, when he says, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse, do not repay e anyone evil for evil. In comparison to these passages, these Psalms sound so vindictive, hateful, bloodthirsty, primitive. But I don't think the reason that we find these prayers troubling is because we're morally superior to the authors. C.S. Lewis picked this up really well. Uh, Lewis was a well-known Christian author and scholar in, in the 20th century, and he once wrote, if I am never tempted and cannot even imagine myself being attempted to gamble. 
This does not mean that I am better than those who are. The point that he's trying to make is that we each have different experiences, and we each have different temptations. But when we haven't experienced uh, life the way that someone else has, it's very easy to feel self-righteous. Isn't it easy to say, I would never pray those things. Uh, Those words would never come out of my mouth. I would never feel something like that. And the fact is, most of us live in a much more comfortable world than the authors of these prayers. We haven't seen our mothers, our fathers, our brothers, our sisters, our children tortured, slaughtered before our eyes. We haven't seen our homes and our cities burned down to the ground. We haven't been taken off into slavery. Are these prayers more understandable when we think of someone like Anne Frank? Sitting day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, in a small room behind a bookcase, waiting to be found, uh, hiding from those who were hunting her and her family simply because of her ethnicity. And if we imagine being her father or her mother, knowing it's not just yourself being hunted, but your children, that there are people seeking to destroy your child, are these prayers more understandable in circumstances like that? And it seems like the more graphic psalms are from situations like this, that they're a response to horrific evil Uh, horrific situations that these authors have experienced themselves. So the very fact that these psalms are found in Scripture, in the Word of God, seems to show that we can express ourselves to God in this way. That we shouldn't be afraid that if these words come out of our mouth, then God will strike us down. That a lightning bolt's going to come out of the sky and, and burn us up where we are that we don't need to do everything in our power to make sure that if we do feel this way, then at least we better not express this in words, let alone in prayer. Even though our prayers should be transformative, even though they should be restrained to a certain extent, we should strive to desire the things that, that God desires, pray for the priorities that He gives us. He always wants us to be honest with Him even brutally honest. Tremper Longman, who's an Old Testament scholar, says, God invites our honest prayers when we are deeply harmed and our anger boils. It would be both fruitless and dangerous to suppress those emotions rather than turning them over to God. And some of you may know, or at least have have guessed. I'm originally from England. And if there's one thing that, I know, shocking, isn't it? Um, (laughs) If there's one thing that the British are proud of, it's their stiff upper lip. We tend to be emotionally restrained. 
stoic and not let things shake us uh, too much. And there was a certain value and strength to that which helped the nation get through the world wars. And yet there's also a danger to merely suppressing emotion. The way from fear and anger and hatred to peace and forgiveness is through those emotions. It's not by suppressing them or by ignoring them. And prayer gives us the rightful place to release those emotions, to turn them over to God. One biblical scholar has said, it's probably the case that prayer is the only acceptable place where such thoughts may be entertained or uttered. So although we can pray like this, that we don't need to be afraid that God will, will strike us down if these words come out of our mouth, that we can be truly honest with Him, there's another question, which is, should we pray like this? Is there anything right and good in these prayers? Or are they just simply wrong? And, and, and God is gracious enough to let us vent. And I think there's a few things to consider. The first is that if these prayers are meant to be taken literally in some of their more graphic parts, they clearly go against some of the teachings of Scripture. For instance, when Psalm 109 says, May his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. May his children be wandering beggars. May they be driven from their ruined homes. May no one take pity on his fatherless children. These prayers stand in contrast to passages like Ezekiel 18.20. The one who sins is the one who will die. The child will not share the guilt of the parent, nor will the parent share the guilt of the child. So we shouldn't pray for, and we shouldn't desire the suffering of an enemy's children. But Derek Kidner, who's a, an Old Testament scholar, says we need to be careful about how we interpret these passages, about how fair we are to understanding these authors. They, these authors lived in a very different time, in a very different place, with a very different customs. And what we think they mean when we read our translation isn't necessarily what they intended. Derek Kidner says, we should notice that this type of strong, angry language has its own rhetoric, its own style of speech, in which horror may be piled on horror, more to express the speaker's sense of outrage than to spell out the penalties they literally intend. It's similar to how Jesus tells the Pharisees at one point, you are the father, or sorry, you are of your father, the devil. Now, if we're going to take that literally, then Jesus is implying that the Pharisees' mothers had intimate relations with the devil. How else would he be their father? But that understanding completely misses the point of what Jesus is getting at. So I think we need to be careful about how we understand some of these psalms and to be fair to the cultural differences with language. But although we, we might not and, and should not 
copy some of this language that these prayers contain. The second point I want to draw our attention to is that the desire at the heart of these prayers are right. Their deepest desire is for justice. For justice. Throughout all of Scripture, God is a God of justice. He hates oppression and abuse. He promises that He will judge evil. That He isn't content just to to leave things as they are. That He doesn't stand back, watch everything, or or just turn away and, and turn a blinder eye to what goes on. And many of these Psalms are less about personal vengeance, just wanting someone to suffer because they hurt us, and more about a desire for justice, a desire to, to see God demonstrate that He is just, that He does care, that evil won't win. Which also reminds us of, of something that never shows up in these prayers. The authors never pray that God would help them take vengeance. They always pray that that God would be the one to act. It's always left in His hands to do as He sees fit. And the psalmist has to be content with God's decision, with God's wise, right, just choice. I think King David is a good example of this. King David wrote many of the Psalms. He wrote some of these more difficult Psalms. And even though he wrote these, he was the one who was hunted down for years unjustly by King Saul. And even by his son at one point. He was chased from his home, chased from his wife, chased from his friends. And yet, when we read the books of Psalm or books of Samuel we see that he never took vengeance on Saul. Even when his friends encouraged him to. Even when he had the opportunity to. Even when Saul was right there, and he didn't know David was there, able to pounce on him and take revenge. David never did. He left it in the Lord's hands. And this act of leaving it in the Lord's hands fits with the teaching of the New Testament. Paul says in Romans 12, 19, Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, It is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. Third, I think we can notice that the New Testament doesn't contradict the Old Testament in this desire for for justice and, and prayers of judgment. There is a time and a place for declaring and praying for judgment. Jesus himself says to the Pharisees, the religious leaders, seven times, woe to you. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves don't enter, and you won't let those enter who are trying to. And this word woe isn't just an expression of This is really bad. It's a declaration of judgment. Jesus is pronouncing judgment on these these Pharisees. 
Or we think of the Apostle Peter in Acts chapter 8, when he talks to a magician. And um, I'm talking about the, the spell books and, and cult kind of magician, not the top hat bunny rabbit. That would be a very different story. But the man tries to give Peter money in exchange for the Holy Spirit. And Peter's response is, may your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. Or, or the martyrs in Revelation 6, those who were killed because of their faith in Jesus Christ, they cry out together, how long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood. So the New Testament shows that there is a time and a place to pray for judgment, to pray for justice in response to evil, to pray that God will act. And fourth, and I think this may be one of the most important points, praying for the judgment and destruction of evil people is not mutually exclusive with praying for their conversion, repentance, and forgiveness. In the same passage where, where Peter speaks to that magician, he actually carries on. May your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. He prays for judgment and pleads with him to repent as well. Even Jesus, after pronouncing the woes on the Pharisees, while on the cross, dying, one of the last things he says is, Father, forgive them. Praying for the judgment and destruction of evil people is not mutually exclusive with praying for the conversion, repentance, and forgiveness. And the reason for this is that because both are possible responses of God. In reality, whenever we pray the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done, we're praying for these two possible outcomes. It's God's will that everyone should come to repentance trust in Christ and receive forgiveness. It's also God's will that those who are unrepentant would face judgment and be called to account for the evil that they've done. And so sometimes maybe with the authors of some of these psalms, one of those possibilities, one of those prayers is prayed, and the other is left implied at times. So what can we learn from these difficult psalms? I think first and foremost, God invites our brutally honest prayers. Even though we should strive to desire um, to pray for the things that, that He sees as priorities, it's kind of a big part of what this whole series has been about, it is making sure our Priorities in prayer align with the, the priorities of God in Scripture. He doesn't want us to put on a show. He doesn't want us to suppress emotions, to ignore 
the reality of how we feel. But then in answer to our second question, should we pray like this? The answer, I think, based on Scripture as a whole, is a careful, qualified yes. There are times where it's right to pray that God would intervene today to judge and to stop evil right now. And we see God intervene in history at points throughout Scripture where He says enough is enough and He steps in. And yet, I think we need a few warnings. The first is that these prayers should come with a warning sign that says, for emergency use only. These aren't littered all throughout Scripture. They occur a number of times in the Psalms. They, they occur in other parts of Scripture. But they don't seem to be like they should be in the daily prayer diet of us. Us. And the New Testament examples are less about judgment on personal enemies and more about judgment upon God's enemies. The second warning I think we need is that this is not an excuse for unforgiveness or unrighteous anger. If we go home and we think, yay, I can hate my enemies, we have completely missed the point of what these prayers are all about. How easily can we fall into unrighteous anger? How easily can we fall into feeling vengeful and hatred? These Psalms remind us of the danger of hatred and unforgiveness. This isn't about getting payback. This is about a desire to see justice in the world, to see God at work, restoring the world, making the world just and right. And then I think the third warning that we need is to remember Jesus. At the worst moment of his life, after being beaten, bruised, bloodied, strung up on a cross, unrighteously, unjustly, and horrifically. He chose not to pray for judgment. He chose not to pray for justice. Instead, he prayed, Father, forgive them. And so all of these warnings should caution us about how and when we pray for judgment. And yet, when we're careful and we keep in mind all of these warnings, the teaching of Scripture shows us that, as N.T. Wright, a New Testament scholar, says, evil is real, and some people are so wicked that we simply must wish judgment upon them. I think there's good news about all of this. There is good news that if you are fearful of the wrath of God, if you are fearful that God will hold you account to account for your sins, you don't need to be fearful. He is offering mercy and grace to you. He is offering the gift of His Son to you 
that your sins be placed on His Son. That when He looks at you, He doesn't see your wickedness. He sees Jesus' righteousness. That's the offer that He makes for you. That's the offer that He makes to you. And that is really good news. And the second piece of good news is that evil won't win. When we look around at the world today, we, we, any idea that the world is getting better, that we're working our way towards a utopia, was, was shattered by the 20th century. More wars, more bloodshed, more creative, inventive, horrific ways of killing people. And we know in the 21st century, with all of our technology, with all of our progress, it's not like we've solved, solved world peace. It's not like we're even close to it. But evil won't win. It's the promise of God that He will right the world. That the evil will be judged. That He will bring an end to wickedness. So what about the Taliban right now? Over their history, the Taliban has supposedly sold women as sex slaves to fund their cause, conscripted child soldiers, spread terrorism. And this week I was reading some of the stories, the recent stories, about what Christians in Afghanistan are facing right now. One pastor in Afghanistan received a letter from the Taliban we know who you are, what you do, and where to find you. And by Saturday of that week, the Taliban were at his door, but he had gone into hiding, praise God. One Afghan pastor in the U.S. spoke about his friend, who's a faithful believer, whose village had been taken by the Taliban. His 14-year-old daughter was ripped from his arms and forced into sexual servitude in what the Taliban would dub as marriage and her dutiful Islamic privilege and responsibility. How do we pray in situations like this? I think we can pray that God would step in, would bring evil to an end by whatever means necessary. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, these psalms and these prayers are, are difficult. And I think a lot of that difficulty stems from how comfortable, relatively, our lives are compared to many of these authors. And yet they also remind us that we must keep ourselves from unrighteous anger and hatred. It is much too easy to to be unrighteously angry than to be righteously angry. We ask that if we're experiencing hatred for those who have wronged us, that we desire vengeance, that we're feeling vindictive, that you would heal those emotions, that we would love our enemies, that we would pray for them, that we would 
extend the same kindness to them that you have extended to us and that we would ask that you would extend that kindness to them that you've extended to us. That grace, that mercy. And Lord, we pray for the Taliban. We pray that just as we have been your enemies and they are your enemies, that you would offer grace and mercy to them. That they would realize their sin. That they would repent. That they would turn from their evil to faith in Jesus and be transformed. But Lord, we also pray that that you would by any means necessary, whether by conversion, whether by destruction, you, you, you would stop this evil. That you would bring judgment upon them. You would bring judgment upon the unrepentant. That you would protect these men, women, and children in Afghanistan. And that you would bring evil to an end. Not just that we look forward to the day when you will bring all evil to an end, but that you would intercede, that you would intervene right now. We pray these things knowing you are wise, knowing you are good, knowing you are just, holy, and righteous. And we leave this in your hands, trusting that you will do the right thing. Amen.